back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters. With your questions, Josh and Dan. I'm Dan. Welcome to Fredonia Con Live 2023. I am on today's Josh. Pod- Go, man. On today's podcast, we will be discussing all things Fredonia Conical. So, if you have any questions, too late. I'm sorry. Put them in the chat. We have some emails to get to, and we'll talk about everything for the next hour or so and pick Josh's brain. So, uh, how's everybody enjoying the con so far? I've been enjoying it. There you go. Everyone else needs to keep quiet. Just kidding. I uh, don't have time for all the responses, but feel free to put them in the chat. Uh, my other only other curiosity is where everybody's located within the world. So feel free to put that in the chat as well. I'm kind of curious where our listeners are based in. Just a curiosity of mine. So first email up. Okay. Can I even get to my email while I'm doing this? Oh, I usually print all these. Should have done that last night, man. Floor is yours while I print one of these up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll vamp. So in the chat, we've got Germany, uh, British Joel is in the chat with us today. We've got Seattle, Poland, New Mexico, the Netherlands, Meridian, Ohio, Kansas City, Missouri. We've got, uh, of course, Colorado and Maine is where I am. Morgan is in the chat. He's down in New Hampshire. Frederick, Maryland. That's actually not too far where my parents lived for a while. Arlington, Texas, Iowa. Yeah, we got we got them from all over. Pretty cool. Hey, while you're taking care of that, um, I was going to maybe do this later, but let me go over for those who were not able to attend the panel yesterday and are maybe catching this on the rebroadcast, either in our feed or watching the video that we are actually recording that will be up on our YouTube channel. There was some stuff that was announced. In addition to the things that were already known to be working on, the Deeper Secrets book, um, which will be the next book that is kickstarted. We don't have a release date for that kickstarter yet uh just soon uh we want the book to be as done as it can be before we launch that obviously uh grand bazaar is still being worked on and trying to get that finished up so that we can get that through the final production steps um but a couple of fascinating things that got announced and i was aware of some of these and one of these i had teased on an earlier episode but morgan revealed that we have been working on an earth dawn wiki And this is going to have, when it's finished, all of the rules from 4th edition, talents, disciplines, spells, paths, some stuff that hasn't made it into books yet, um, like the uh, familiar rules that Morgan has been working on are going to end up being on there until they can find a home in a book if they ever do. Setting information, all this sort of stuff. The stuff that is currently available for free is, of course, going to be available for free on the wiki, but a lot of the information is going to be accessible through a subscription. While it's in the beta and still being developed, once we have the payment thing all set up, it's going to be $2.50 a month. Uh, And then when the full thing is complete, it'll be $5 a month, but that'll give you access to everything. And when that's kind of ready to launch, just keep an ear out, we'll let you know. And in fact, you may get access to stuff through the wiki that, uh, is going to be in a book, but may not be booked yet. I think that's a sentence. Also, 30th anniversary coming up this year. Yeah, one of the the later projects that's going to happen this year is new omnibus editions of the original Chris Kubasik Jerole novels, The Longing Ring, Mother Speaks, and Poisoned Memories. Those are getting a new sort of proofing editing pass done by Dan. And going to be done in a sort of deluxe omnibus edition. And then the other one is 
the sort of lost Earthdawn novels. We're going to have Scars and Little Treasures, the two Aina Earthdawn novels done by Caroline Spector, along with Jack Koch's Life Rock, all of which were sort of written back in the first edition days, have seen limited release, but very limited, very limited release. Um, Little Treasures, in fact, has not had an official release in English, but those are going to be put together and put out and are going to be sort of the at least right now, the the planned campaign that is going to be towards the end of the summer when we are kind of hitting the actual 30th anniversary. And of course, a bunch of other stuff as well. But those are the two big ones that I wanted to talk about while I bought Dan time. And so now you have emails. Yes, now we have emails. Um, sorry, I always forget the push to talk screws up what I can and cannot do with uh, live recording. So my apologies. Uh, Josh, thanks for filling in for time. So our first email comes from Polythemus. Good evening, Earthdawn survivalists. It has been a great pleasure to listen to your loquacious and approachable take on Earthdawn's universe and mechanics. As a longtime fan and first edition playing in my teens, it was my first tabletop RPG, and I have had my passion reignited over the recent months, which started with Stranger Things and youthful reminiscence of Earthdawn. Serendipity struck as several people at my employment were similarly wistful and wished to try a tabletop RPG. Thusly, I have recruited six new players to the Earth Dawn fold, most with experience of other systems, some with no experience at all. Into this milieu, I have offered to game master a group of adults, a feat I have not tried in 20 years. We had single session zero and a fairly homebrew adventure. The group consists of Obsidian Warrior, Troll Sky Raider, Tuscrang Nethermancer, Windling Elementalist, Elven Troubadour, and Elven Scout. They will be battling to determine a mystery plot and constructs formed from Asvat many eyes. Nice. I will be using a Jehuthra as the final boss toned down via suggestions from Morgan Weeks' website. I will try not to kill any players, but wanted to try to touch on themes that stand out in Earthdawn, at least to me. Blood paths, corruption, and horrors. I wanted to ask a couple of questions. How have each of you handled player deaths as game masters in the past? When considering mechanics versus storytelling, do you ever favor one over the other to help the game along? Lastly, with a troubadour in my group and with her focus on social conflict, I fear my competency with the mechanics will not do justice to the player as he has chosen not to take melee weapons at first circle, which came as a shock to me, though kept this to himself. Though kept this to myself. When trying to consider the many layers of social mechanics in 4th edition, is there a good sample adventure that can help to highlight these in a helpful way? The way they are presented in the books makes a somewhat impractical comparison to the verisimilitude, seemingly Josh's favorite word in the Earthon context, their pragmatic application in the game. Many thanks, Polythemus. Okay, first off, don't kill your players. Kill their characters. <laughs> um, uh, I, had, I had a player death that I'm not going to talk about, but yeah, so. I personally prefer narrative slash story situations over like letting the dice fall where they may. That's just my personal style. I've had player characters die in my games before, but usually it was a situation where the player wanted to change characters or situations in the game uh, meant that they kind of had to go away. And so we had the character death kind of rolled in as part of the events that was going on at the time. The long-term game that I ran with characters that are now featured as example characters in the fourth edition books had uh Bearclaw was a journeyman, a first edition style journeyman that um ended up the player wasn't super happy, wanted to change characters, and uh had a like basically set up a 
self-sacrifice situation um, as part of that. And it was negotiated and, and discussed and all kind of planned beforehand. That's just my style. So that's the way that I would lean. You know, other people like to have more unexpected stuff that goes on with regards to the dice. Um, the Legends of Earthdawn podcast game that I was a part of, the death of Rusty's character early on was just simply a dice falling where they may, and it got rolled into be a significant aspect of character motivations and the story that was going forward. So, you know, it can work either way. I don't think that there's a, a problem. I just am in some ways kind of a softie when it comes to running games. And if players like their characters, I don't want to break them with that, which also kind of runs into issues that I might have with horror themed gaming and the, the damage and hazard that can come about as a result of that. But that's my own hang up. Fair. I, I think I've only had one character death I've had to deal with and everybody, the entire party rallied around and did everything they could with recovery tests and healing potions and the whole nine yards and the dice just did not let that happen. Uh, so I took a big red marker and wrote deceased on the character sheet. And that was pretty much the last time I did that. But my players knew that, you know, they're going up against the big, bad, nasty, and that occasionally happens. So they wrote up the new character and, went along with it. So, and then would his new character introduced himself to the party and they would occasionally ask that one person would occasionally ask the, the long-standing members of the party. So tell me about your, your former friend. And so he got to hear about his character secondhand. And that was kind of a cool thing as well as you get to hear about the character you played originally and what everybody else thought of your character originally back to the player. So I kind of like that, uh, that aspect of it as well. It was very neat to do. Let's see. Yeah, the question was about social. Yeah. Uh, with the Druid my group, there was a focus on social conflict. I fear my competency with the mechanics will not do justice to the players. He has chosen not to take melee weapons at first circle, which came as a shock to me. Uh, when trying to consider the many layers of social mechanics in fourth editions, are a good sample adventure that can help um, highlight social interaction, social conflict. Yes. One of the Legends of Bar Save Adventures, I think it's the second one, if there are people in the chat that know the one it's the one that involves um the characters investigating disappearances uh the one that involves the the garland's alms house and belleron and stuff there the sort of early interactions when they first arrive with the young blind elf girl lip service yeah i think that's the one that it is and the dwarf couple and with Belleron, there's a lot of stuff that was written into that to take advantage of and provide examples for the way that you might use the Game Master character attitudes and such to determine how you might get the information that you need out of them as a combination of favors and manipulating their attitude to get to the point where they might do that for you. So that's definitely sort of a, a first one that I would look at. Uh, I want to put uh, one last thought on the uh, mechanics versus storytelling. I find that the mechanics are like special effects in a movie. They should help tell the story, but the story is a more important thing. Well, yes, but at the same time, like I said, sometimes the dice are going to result in the story going in a direction that nobody expected. And there is Agreed. a certain value as a game master for having that surprise show up. 
that you are discovering what is happening alongside the player characters, but beside your players. So, you know, there is value in both ways. I do not want to make a overall value judgment. I know generally what I prefer, but also at the same time, sometimes the the dice will have their way and you just kind of need to figure out the consequences of that. Yeah. Occasionally I'll hand wave and go, yeah, I'm not gonna be that much of a jerk. We can we can fix this. Uh so sorry for me more important. So next email. Uh, from K. Scott Rowe. Thank you. Uh, he is in the chat. Emailer. Hey, cool. Hey, doing? Uh, hey, Dan and Josh. So this may have already been pointed out, but I just realized this. The first publication from First Edition, the rule book, was published in 1993. The last publication from First Edition, Orc Nations of Carafod, was published in 1998, a duration of at most six years. The first publication from Fourth Edition was printed in 2015. That's over seven years ago. So at this point, 4th edition has lasted longer than 1st edition. This seems like it deserves a celebration of some sort, or at least cake. Yeah. Anyway, on to my question. (laughs) Well, we'll get to the question. But yes, that is true. In terms of calendar time, 4th edition has been around longer than 1st. 1st put out more books and products than, or more books yet than than we have here in 4th. I mean, I don't know, maybe if you count the individual Legends of Barsave Adventure ash cans and stuff, I don't know, I haven't done the math, but I, I sure. feel like first produced a lot more because they typically would have like two to four products a year, especially in the early years, they were doing like, you know, four products a year pretty regularly and had a lot of yeah. stuff come out. And we just don't have that uh, production rate because it's not a full-time job for us, unfortunately. Agreed. I Yeah. Pay me, I'll be there. Uh, on to my question. Page 263 of the Player's Guide. Everyone grab your book, follow along. Uh, describes casting from a grimoire. This section reads of casting from unfamiliar grimoires in a hurry, as well as casting from your own grimoire in your home. However, I don't see anything in the rules preventing a magician from casting from their own grimoire while out on an adventure. Sure, the magician would have to open their grimoire to the correct page, but I don't see that as a problem. I assume most magicians know exactly where their grimoire is at all times and what page each spell is on. So unless they are fumbling around with a battle axe or something else occupying their hands, I expect a simple action would be sufficient to access the attuned spell in their grimoire for casting. This trick would essentially give each magician an extra spell slot in addition to their matrices. Do you agree with this? If so, would they also get the extra success mentioned on the top of page 265? Thanks again for taking my questions and hosting a great podcast, K. Scott. Um, yeah. If I didn't read that right, K. Scott, drop it in the chat and uh, let me clarify. More or less, yeah. There's nothing really that prevents a magician from casting from a grimoire when they're out in the field. I don't know if we actually talked about this when we were talking about the spell casting and grimoire casting and stuff like that many, many, many episodes ago. Some of the... Oh, Morgan is saying in the chat, in combat, absolutely not. Okay. So, yeah, uh, clarification from Morgan there. But, I mean, (laughs) out in the field, like, basically being, you know, if you are not in a combat stressful situation, rather than reattune the Matrix, maybe casting Crunch Climb out of your grimoire to get that bonus it's quite a bit there and also even though in some sense you might feel that it's easy especially in a combat situation that is a possibly fragile item 
that being exposed to combat and the dangers thereof, if there was some kind of hazard or danger or damage that befell it, that could be a problem. Um, not that we have specific rules in place for damage to a grimoire, but uh, that is definitely something that I would consider and a magician probably would not want to expose their primary thing. Morgan also points out that you are it's more like referencing a manual with all the required notes, not just flipping to a page. So yeah, there is some complexity that that is involved there. And I think that is part of why the unfamiliar grimoire casting does require like a sort of reattunement on the fly roll and takes a little bit of additional time compared to casting a spell that you already know. Good point. Good, good point. All right. On to Ian. Uh, they have a question. So greetings, Dan and Josh. I just wanted to say I love the show. After discovering the existence of Earthdawn RPG back in late November 2022, and in turn the existence of the EDSG podcast series, I have had a voracious appetite for all things Earthdawn. Thanks to the kind of job I have, I've been able to catch up with, as of this email, all your episodes in under three months. Wow. Any questions about mechanics or lore I could have had have been answered over the last 150 plus episodes, which is a good thing, of course. I just wanted to express my appreciation towards the both of you and the podcast you run that has been a source of entertainment, education, and joy for me on the daily for the last three months. My only disappointment is that there's no more episodes for me to catch up on, and now I join the rest of the listeners to wait to tune into next week's episode. Seriously, you two are awesome. Thank you. Uh, Ian, you um, check you his can, email. Yeah, you can always do what other people are doing, which is go back to the beginning and listen to them again. I know someone who has said that they listened to the, have listened to the entire podcast feed through twice and also are now doing a third run through on the uh, YouTube episodes as they go up. Um, and we certainly appreciate that dedication. Uh, there's a lot of information there and stuff that you can miss maybe the first time through or that slips your mind and whatnot and, and giving you new perspectives and things like that. So that's awesome. Absolutely. Appreciate totally, it. totally. Ian goes on. I've introduced Earthdawn to three of my gaming friends and I'm now running a bi-weekly Earthdawn game with them. Yay. All four of us are more familiar with D&D and Pathfinder, but for the last year I've been looking for a new game system I would want to run that was different than what I'd been using for the last decade of running and playing in tabletop games. I knew my friends wouldn't want to play in unknown armies. They prefer the more traditional fantasy RPG, but one of these days I will convince someone to play with me. <laughs> so finding Earthdawn was just great. What I love the most about Earthon is that it's, so far, the first tabletop RPG where I immediately latched on to the setting. Ian, I'm with you. Usually for me, with D&D and Pathfinder, I would just homebrew my campaign settings because their original settings never interested me that much. Except Dark Sun, because who doesn't love Dark Sun? However, with Earthon, I immediately gravitate to the setting, aesthetics, and vibe of the world and its lore. I could go into more detail, but honestly, I would just gush over everything and we'd be here all day. Haha. <laughs> Not to mention the mechanics I adore. My players and I are really taking to, to it. My player's circle one party is made up of a windling thief, a troll gauntlet, and an obsidian nethermancer. And so far, they haven't met a foe that they didn't defeat. Granted, they've only had one combat encounter, but still, credit or credit is due. I'm planning to take them through the Legends of Barsave campaign, if they're willing to delve into par length. Very excited. It still irks me that even though Earthdawn came out a year before I was born... I'm feeling old now. Um, it took me 28 years to hear about it. A travesty. Better late than never, though. After typing all this out, I finally thought of two questions or suggestions for content. One, after re-listening to Dan's readings of the legends, it made me want to hear him and read hear him read the Longing Ring as well. Any chance we could start a Kickstarter or whatever to fund Dan reading all the Earth Dawn books? 
Ian, your second check is in the mail. <laughs> um, so to address that first, as I just mentioned earlier in this episode, we are doing a Kickstarter later this year for omnibus editions of the Jerol trilogy, as well as the the quote unquote lost novels. There is some... But those are print. Yeah, those are in print. There is some discussion in the background about the possibility of audio versions of them that is not solid um but i would be super interested in doing that myself possibly dan and i working together uh but that that is like that would be kind of cool anyway um absolutely yeah morgan pointed out in the chat this is the second unknown armies reference in as many days because i mentioned it in uh our hangout last night Hey, you know, good game is good game. Uh, number two, I would really like to hear from both of you more about your favorite moments or stories that you can recall from the Earth Dawn games or other RPG games even uh, you two have run or played in over the years. Sincerely, Ian. I think I've told this story before, but one of my favorite Earth Dawn moments uh, is when I was running a game. This was for the quote unquote Riders on the Storm campaign, that first really long campaign that I ran in like two and a half or three real world real world years um this is the one where salar and tomas and ulm and a couple of other uh names that you might recognize from the examples in the player's guide came from the wizard tomas basically cast dispel magic on the party swordmaster for reasons that are a little complicated to get into right now but basically under the suspicion that he might have been under some kind of um curse or powerful magical effect that was preventing him from really having much memory of anything in his past cast the spell successfully and this is of course first edition so the effect of dispel magic was the result of a willpower test that was made after the test was successfully cast uh he i believe used his desperate spell charm on the effect for the dispel magic and like blew up the dice three times and had like some kind of redonkulously high result, which was of course a moment that, you know, had me like, okay, I need a minute to figure out what's going to happen here because I knew what the situation was. And it's possible that him casting that spell on the sword master would actually just kill him outright uh, because it turned out that his body was a nethermantic, construct that had a spirit bound into it and potentially the dispel magic would destroy the the body or the binding or whatever and i'm like that would not be cool but it was just like that moment of like he rolled the dice announced the result and there was just like this silence around the table as every kind of looked at me and i just i'm sure had this kind of like panic-stricken uh expression as i needed to kind of figure out what uh what happened fortunately um you know, it was easy enough to decide that, and I don't even know if this was actually available in the rules yet, but that essentially it was like a, a named spell. Um, and so a simple detect, uh, dispel magic was not going to be enough to undo it. But that was, that is probably one of my biggest moments. The other one is from that same campaign where I had a sort of long-term horror lurking in the background called the dream stalker that would basically just kind of show up and occasionally infiltrate their dreams and manipulate things. And their first encounter with it uh, involved them waking up in the morning, going out on this mission, and things getting progressively weirder, and then waking up back where they had sort of started the day. And then the realization that there was not, um, that there were no features in the sky, like no clouds or sun or anything like that. 
And then it became sort of a running thing whenever things started to get weird or unsettling or, or perhaps too dangerous. They would go, I look, is there a sun in the sky? Um, just recognizing all of that. So just some wonderful, wonderful moments. I agree. Anything from you? Oh, um, <clears throat> I have a couple that are just involved some dice rolls. My favorite one is my very first adventure I was running. What's it called? Anyway, they were attacked. My my party was attacked by a, a small caravan of orc scorchers. And my first circle player tried to use his sword because he was playing a good old fashioned warrior and just couldn't hit anything with the sword. And so it ended up getting knocked out of his hand and then grabbed his shield and tried to do a shield bash unskilled. And I said, well, basically, since there's a couple of modifiers, you're down to just a single D4 to roll this. And he pulled off a 33. I watched him roll a D4. He just grabbed every D4 out of his bag over and over and over again. And he pulled off a 33. I said, well, you're better skilled at that. So that was one of my fun ones. And the other one was he was trying to do a Jackie Chan move up some canyon walls because there were some archers on the other side. And so he was trying to do uh, when Jackie Chan climbs a a corner, there's a fence on one side and a concrete wall on the other side. And so he goes up back and forth using his legs. Uh, he tried that. And the archers realized that's a sitting duck. And so I hit him over and over and over. And so the little pincushion fell out of the sky. And I looked at him and said, you saw that going differently in your head, didn't you? <laughs> so I have that one. Uh, <laughs> there was another one where I was running uh, Terror in the Skies and the troll weaponsmith played by my brother um, was in this fight. And they, the other, uh, other characters had gotten the small Drakkar that they were using and circled the big ship. And they hopped on board and there was a complete miscommunication as to what the intent was. So they little looked at each other. Both of them in player, in character said, let's go. And the weaponsmith dove back into the fray and everybody else got on the boat to leave. Whoops. And so then they took off and they realized we're missing someone. And meanwhile, the troll weaponsmith is absolutely laying cats out. So it was that was fun. The story narrative worked quite well. So those are my three that I can immediately come to mind. Uh, if my players were here, they would, of course, have their own stories. But being a game master, I have to remember everything and they get to remember their part of it. So it's yeah. a it's a slight bit, it's a little bit of a different story. Um, but apparently somebody in the chat really wants audio and wants to know if Josh would be Jerol and I would be Garlthic or vice versa. I don't know. <laughs> I, I really like Garlthic as a character, so I would probably want to voice him. Absolutely. Um, I can see that. I can just see me doing all the narration of the the, the non voice parts, and you can do all the voices. We'll we'll see what happens. These are not promises, anybody. You 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 know who that's a problem for? Future Dan and Future Josh. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Uh, last email, and we will have some time to take some uh, questions from the chat. So this one is from Evan. Happy FredoniaCon, gentlemen. I finally caught up with the podcast and have been getting to enjoy it more or less on release days after some binging to close out last year. And I'm looking forward to listening live and spectating events for the first time. Welcome to FreeDoniaCon. My question and related tangents are a result of a discussion recently on the FASA Discord involving combat abilities, spells, and defenses. So... Morgan Scheinman. While the flow of combat makes it plain that player characters obviously need to understand how many successes they have had for a test against opponents to adjust their steps for subsequent tests, i.e. higher damage step, test step from attack test, it became clear that not every table or game master handles tests going the other way against the player characters in the same manner. When players have a hit or success of some type incoming, should they know the exact number rolled against them? 
should they know the number of successes? Only that they have a hit or at a minimum, the one success and what type coming their way up to the game master of the table. Yes. Up to the game master of the table. That is a table culture thing. Personally, I edge towards providing more information than less because while the character in the world has a whole lot of information and stimuli and things that they are receiving by being in that situation and having that knowledge and being able to react to it, the player does not have that feedback. And so I think it's better to provide more information so that the player can make a more informed decision about what they would want to do. I I don't know that exact target numbers are necessarily required. Like I might mention the number of successes or say that it's a really solid hit, you know, or something like that. Just give some kind of indication of your odds of successfully using avoid blow against this are, are probably low. But I don't think that there's necessarily any problem with providing those exact numbers if it especially if it helps kind of speed things along and smooths out your play but it is ultimately a table culture thing and and how much um information you want to provide mildly related to that actually there was a read through that i was following where somebody was doing a read through of tomb of horrors the classic ad&d adventure notorious for being a meat grinder And going through and actually looking at it and how fair or unfair or whatever things were. And there were a number of places where how deadly a particular trap would be would ultimately come down to how much information the DM is providing to the players in terms of what they can see and what happens in the interactions and things like that. And that there is a certain play style that is foundational to the way that that adventure was kind of written and developed, that if you are approaching it from a different play style could be very, very different and result in a very different outcome. That there actually is not a lot in that dungeon that if the DM is playing fair is just outright murderous to everybody. There are a couple of things that that if players, you know, if the characters are stupid, might outright kill them. But there's a lot of opportunity for them to figure things out or react or whatever, especially considering the level of characters that were expected to be in there and the tools that they would be likely to have and things like that. Fair. No, I got you. That all makes sense. I, we, my table's going back and forth on sometimes, uh, you know, what, what number do I have to roll against? You know, because I want to I want to know my odds in my own head if I have the dice for that or if I should throw karma on. Uh, and sometimes it's just one of those game master says, nope, just try. You might want to use some karma. Give you give you a hint. But we're all playing online. So it's, it's we're not using a dice roller. We're still using uh, dice on the table. So uh, occasionally it's for uh, don't cheat your dice rolls every once in a while. Um Part of the reason that Evan asked the question, how I he assumed things were handled since first edition, was the consideration of the talent knacks for active defenses, such as roll with the punches for avoid blow, make a concession for resist taunt, and absorb spell for steel thought, all of which reduce the number of successes by one for the respective attack types. If the players do not know at least the number of successes, it would then seem to be a blind gamble that a big hit is coming their way they otherwise might not be able to avoid entirely. So how have you, have, do you both handle this in 4th edition at tables you run or are part of? What, if any, benefits do you see for handling it one way over the other? Appreciate all the work you two put in the podcast and the setting itself, Evan. 
I am not 100% consistent, but I do try and at least let people know how many successes there are on like hits against them and things like that. Typically, I'm running games at cons, and I don't usually have knacks on those characters because they're lower circle, and I have new players they've got enough, you know, if I have new players, they've got enough to worry about without having to factor in a whole additional layer of powers or stuff that they might uh, have access to. So the knacks consideration isn't a big deal, but at least having a sense of that's the flow of information that's going back and forth. You know, you hit the the, the raider for three successes, so you're going to get plus four damage on your attack um, or he's going to hit you oh that's a really solid hit he's got four extra successes do you wish to try and avoid blow knowing that that's like oh you're going to need to roll like 20 over your uh your physical defense to really you know to even possibly have a chance of pulling it off i mean i i think i would probably fall down on at least the number of successes in part because sometimes not revealing the exact number. Again, especially at con games, I'm kind of a softy. If I don't reveal the exact number and they're close enough, I might give it to them, you know, just to allow for a moment to like fudge the numbers a little way. That brings in a whole other discussion about fudging numbers and things like that when it comes to uh, game mastering. Um, and there is a different, for me, a different expectation when I am running games for a group, especially if there are newer players at a table where I'm trying to introduce them and hook them on the game, as opposed to providing a, I mean, for me, that's an authentic experience mm -hmm. beyond, you know, other than, you know, aside from being a strict rules prescriptivist uh, when it comes to things falling out. Barrick. Uh, K. Scott in the chat has a question for us. Given that the character who authored the description of Nevis was clearly corrupted by Nevis, can we trust the dates and locations he recorded of Nevis sightings and Nevis corruptions? Nevis, Nevis. Yes, I would say that we can. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> uh, Krugulus Maximus, thanks for answering my question. We're good there. Anybody have anything else? Because we got 15, 18 minutes we can fill. Uh, well, British Joel uh, has uh, one of my great moments as a player was the ref telling not to bother spell repost as he rolled 56. I was karma canceled and told him I was going to roll whatever the odds and won 64-ish later and I armor defeated Virgigorn with his own razor orb. Nicely done. Ah, uh, those high-powered games. <laughs> I love when the dice explode like that. It's one of my big selling points for Earth on Still is these dice explode. Yeah. And I still get people who are like, oh, I really? And when we play other games or even, you know, uh, like Monopoly or Sorry. And we're, we're just, just kidding. Uh, people look at the dice and go, it's a six. Should I roll it again? No. Sorry, sorry, sorry. uses cards. <laughs> it, does, it does use cards. Uh, no, we were thinking, I uh, was sorry. I sorry was for the apology. I was thinking of the, oh. the tabletop <laughs> game Formula Day. Oh, yes. Formula, that's a fun game. When you hit six gear and roll a 30, you want to do it again? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't played that game in ages. I don't have a copy of that, but I remember playing that at the game store back in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. So Formula Day is the original version. Formula D is, this, is the newer version. You can still get it. And the boards are compatible as far as I'm aware. Yeah, yeah I've got all the game boards and the cars and the dice and the whole lot. Yeah, I love that game. It's a it's a it's a great little racing game. It is. It's fantastic. Thank you. British Joel agrees with us. Formula D is great. Uh, Jason has a question. With the release of Asgothia, is there talk of any other provinces? Right now, the only outside bar save thing that's being worked on is Arancia, um, which is a book set in the equivalent of present-day France. That's been sort of on the burner cooking for a while, and Kyle is the one 
sort of at this point heading up development with a text that was primarily written by uh, Julien Peru, a French gamer, um, and so forth, and, and Earthdawn fan. Don't know exactly what the timetable on the, that is coming out, but we're kind of sh- trying to shift our focus back on bar save a little bit more. But yeah, Arancia right now is the only one, uh, and that has n- had very, very little information ever revealed about it. Um, so there is, in one sense, less work massaging previously existing stuff into <laughs> into a, a book that we're happy with. What am I drinking is the question in the chat. Uh, I am drinking some water enhancer. It looks really, really green in this. It's actually orange. Uh, the lighting here is not the world's best. I apologize for that. And I'm drinking it out of a 20-ounce Bon Maman jelly jar glass. I'm just drinking water. Yeah, it's water. It's just enhanced with a, uh, a liquid water enhancer because I do that. Yes. Yeah, okay, Scott. I read the length is five miles on a side. If I calculate the area correctly, it is roughly the size of Manhattan. Does that seem right? Yeah, it's about 25 square miles. I don't know off the top of my head what the actual area of the island of Manhattan is. But yeah, Parlength is a city. It was a sizable city with a significant population prior to the Scourge. And having it be that large means that there is plenty of space for everything that you might want to be in there to be in there. And keep in mind that there's surface level and the undersellers, you know, the, the lower levels below ground. Um, so you're looking at even more territory you know you're talking about something that is comparable to like you know the full mines of moria from lord of the rings or something like that where there is just a lot of space for stuff to happen the uh, the chat has provided us uh including the water manhattan is 33.58 square miles so par length Nicely is, done. A, is a little bit less yeah the land is 22.83 and there are quite a lot of people that live in Manhattan. And so a city like Parlanth. Yeah. But that it is significantly not completely abandoned, but the population density within it is pretty low, which, you know, you look at um, post-apocalyptic kind of media, uh, The Last of Us, for example, which is really, really good if heartbreaking phenomenal but the kind of situations that you have there outside of the 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 qz's the quarantine zones where everybody kind of mostly lives is bleak and empty and abandoned and what is happening to civilization in the 20 years after the infection has broken out and stuff like that yeah it's it's really well designed and phenomenal environmental storytelling and stuff like that British Joel points out ancient Rome was 16 square miles. So 25 doesn't seem crazy. He's right. Well, considering Manhattan builds up, they have skyscrapers and, and Parlanth is more spread out. Not not quite as tall, four or five, six stories. Manhattan Manhattan is also sort of like elongated, sort of cigar shaped. Whereas Parlanth is, is a trapezoid, a parallelogram. (laughs) Sorry. It it is a, I mean, yeah, it is a parallelogram and Parlanth built down. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, Washington DC may be a better comparison. So not, not overall too bad. Um, and yes, I, I use a 20 ounce jelly jar because this sucker has a wider base, but normally my, uh, my podcast recording glass of choice is my firefly laser etched. I aim to misbehave glass. So, uh, Washington DC is another comparison. Um, there are height limits on the buildings 
in D.C. because of the Washington Monument and various other things. Uh, that's something to keep yes. in mind as well. Yeah. So there are plenty of mm -hmm. examples where we've got cities today that take up about roughly the same space. Uh, it's just that even at the size that it was, even at its height, probably Parlinth was not as densely populated as Manhattan or something like that. Uh, there was a question that we kind of skipped past there. Is there a new, I assume he means Theron, not Terran. I think so. But yes. Theron reintroduction planned. I really miss them as bad guys. Yeah, I mean, there isn't anything planned. They're still around. It's just because they do not have the military presence within Barsave anymore. They've kind of needed to change their tactics within the province. And they are also semi-busy in other parts of the world dealing with other things. If in the course of things, you know, we come up with a, a good way for them to get involved with something, uh, then we may very well do that. But there's nothing currently right at the moment. We're sort of in a slight lull between province-shaking effects. We had empty thrones and we're looking and talking about what we might have in the future. But nothing solid in that regard yet. Fair. Um, uh, British Joel's curious about the loss of population over the scourge. So if, if there is a population count, like a census pre-scourge versus post-scourge, but I think the results of that are still up in the air. Yeah, there is There is not. There were not any population numbers for pre-scourge, and there certainly aren't any official ones for post-scourge, just because of the amount of stuff that was involved. Uh, Barsave, broadly speaking, is not particularly densely populated outside of the cities. There is a lot of open space, which again is great because it lets you drop your own settlements and communities and stuff out there to have adventures in without needing to make sure that it all lines up with everything that has been described about a given area. Fair. Uh, okay, anything else we got? So, Stroll proper was about 50,000? Population? Um, Case got some memory. Well, I think the halls of Thrall were 50,000. I think once you start including the inner cities, it gets a little bit larger. The rough numbers that I have always been kind of dealing with is that maybe the total population across Barsay, factoring in all of the major cities and stuff, is maybe in the vicinity of a million people total. But that's just remembering off the top of my head. There were some numbers that were given in, I think, the Explorer's Guide to Barsave, the original sort of first edition source book like that. Population numbers, much like the maps in Earthdawn, there were some things that we sort of take for granted in our present day world that would not be a consideration for one in that place, you know, where we have GPS and satellite imaging that give can give us really accurate images that, you know, even with airships and scout and troubadour adepts, mapping in in a setting like that is not one that's going to be what we expect or what we are familiar with, even coming from things like D&D gaming and so forth. And by the same token, demographics and population numbers are largely something that in earlier times was gathered as a result of the need to tax people. And so the numbers for larger cities where you've got governments that actually are going to be levying taxes and stuff like that will be interested in keeping at least rough numbers of what's going on. You're not going to have accurate numbers like that for 
isolated populations, especially if they're not as- affiliated with any traditional government, quote unquote. Yeah, fair. So Brendan's got a question. I, uh, as of the last few episodes about the troll moots, could we talk about how troll raiding culture persisted through the scourge and how time was spent care dwelling? Uh, was there raiding going on within the cares? I don't think so. Um, at least not in the sense that it is that it goes on like in the in the post scourge era, because there is a different reality of life. I know that a lot of that some of the early source books and stuff talk about sky raiders working with elementalists to help their airships fly within the limited confines of a care so that they could practice their skills and and kind of keep those traditions going to a certain extent. I mean, that's certainly something that I could see perhaps in some communities where if there was a political division or something like that that happened where different groups might end up going against each other, you know, there's certainly a possibility, but I don't necessarily think that broadly across the entire culture that it's something that was continued to be done within the cares. But I haven't dug into that to check to see if there's a whole lot of information. Uh, speaking of mugs, uh, how can Jason request an Earth Dawn mug to go with the rest of his Earth Dawn geeky mug collection? With the rest of his geeky mug collection, yeah. Um, yeah. Merchandise is awkward. Yeah. Out, outside of certain things, like clothing especially, you either go with print-on-demand stuff, um, which we have kind of had in the past but never had great numbers, in part because they tend to be a little bit more expensive um, if you're going through mm-hmm. something like um, Spreadshirt or whatever. Yeah. And so while that is a possibility, it's not ever – like I have an Earthdawn mug um, that I got, I think, from back in the, the Red Brick days. Um, I do too. And then I've also got a big glass stein that one of our fans etched the old style Earth Dawn logo into the side of it. So it's like a handmade. Yeah, like that one. Yeah. Morgan's got one of them too. Yeah. I mean, it is a thing. Um, it's just not been a huge interest. I don't know. Higher priority. You know, Morgan's in the chat. He just saw the question and and it 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 is possible that something like that might be looked at. But then you start looking at stocking and all sorts of stuff warehousing and shipping and yeah yeah all kinds of fun stuff well any final thoughts in the last three minutes no i i like doing this every year i like that we have the opportunity to do fredonia con to have an online space that is sort of dedicated to all of our stuff because of course uh travel being expensive and conventions being what they are and the lives that the Earth Dawn team, as well as the other development folks at FASA have in terms of our ability to go different places, is kind of limited in terms of how we can interact with people. And this is an opportunity for us to do so in a way that is convenient for everyone. Patrick, thank you uh, for doing the podcast. Also, thank you for doing the podcast. I appreciate it as well. Uh, it is fun getting together with Josh every couple of weeks. And it makes me read the books I've not been reading for the last 20 years, just to put it all back in my head because Josh's memory is infinitely more uh, robust than mine. But even then it reminds me of a bunch of details that I don't remember and then remember how cool they are and start building that web in my head that then when Morgan and I have our occasional like story brainstorm discussion sessions, all of that stuff will like come back. My subconscious will have been working on it on making connections and knowing stuff. So it's, it's been 
fun and enlightening and just great. I'm I'm so happy that people enjoy it and continue to do so. And at least for now, we're planning on continuing to do it for at least a little bit longer. Oh, yeah. As long as we possibly can, we will draw this out. And just as everybody knows, Mother Speaks is sitting here on my desk next to me. Uh, thanks to Josh and Dan and Nevis. Uh, the podcast was a huge deal for me when COVID killed my gaming life. Sorry, Mark Ant. Uh, Brendan says, thank you both. Podcast is wonderful. We're still doing it, man. We're still going <laughs> to learn JavaScript to do Foundry. There you go. Learn new skills. Yeah. What can you do? One of those fun, fun things. Uh, yeah. Still enjoying it. Even if we don't do the podcast and record it, I'll still call Josh every two weeks just to harass him. So, <laughs> as I can, one of those things. Uh, we're going to get out of here for the next uh, set of moderators and so forth in the main room for Fredonia Con. So, thank you, listeners. Thank you, questioners. Thank you, everybody who sent everything in. Uh, we appreciate helping us fill the time that we have here today. So until next time, uh, go Fredonia Con for your legend. Good night, everybody.